holy. Increase and multiply upon us thy mercy, that, our be, that thou being our ruler and guide, we may so pass through things temporal that we finally lose not the things eternal. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Well, welcome back. Thank you for braving the bitter weather. Hopefully I'll produce enough light and heat to keep you warm over the course of the next hour. We are in Acts chapter 19 today, for those of you who may be coming back for the new year. And we are going to begin at verse 21 and read through the end of the chapter. So if you have your Bibles, you want to open them to Acts 19, beginning at verse 21. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. And about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. Uh, incidentally, that is an early description of the Christian community, the way. Uh, it comes from Jesus' words in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So frequently in the book of Acts, you'll see reference to the way. Uh, it's an early description of the Christian community. So about that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who had made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. And when they heard this, they were enraged and crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion. And most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hands, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. You have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. 
If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open, and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Now let's just read on the next verse here. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. We come here to the second part of Acts chapter 19. It's a very important section, and it tells of this great riot that erupted in Ephesus. A riot that erupted as a direct result of the impact that the gospel was having on that community. Uh, we said last week when we took a look at Paul's ministry in Ephesus, it was the place where Paul incidentally stayed longer than any other place. He was there for at least two years in Ephesus. Now that doesn't seem like a particularly long time for us. Uh, I can't believe it, but this May will mark two years that I've been here at St. Philip's. It may seem to you like an eternity, but it doesn't seem particularly long for me. And I think to myself, that's, that's a relatively brief period of time to be in one place to minister. But of course, you have to remember that Paul was an itinerant. He was going out to establish churches and move from place to place. And so two years in one place was a significant investment of time. And we said that when Paul preached in a place, he preached continuously. Day in and day out, he went into the school of Tyrannus and he preached the gospel. And when it says he did this daily... Remember, there were no five-day weeks in those days. Uh, he preached daily. That probably meant seven days a week or perhaps up to five hours a day preaching the gospel. And so even though it was a relatively brief period of time, it was a significant investment on the apostles' part of time and energy. And we said that the gospel really began to take root in the heart and the lives of these people. Ephesus was not only an important city, but the church that was established there became a significant church. We mentioned that in the book of Revelation, where there is that list of the seven churches, the six, seven significant churches, Ephesus, the church of the Ephesians, leads the list. So this was an important church that Paul had established there. And the proof that the gospel had taken root in the lives of these people was to be found in the fact that Paul was beginning, and the gospel, I should say, in particular, was beginning to have an impact on the economy. It was beginning to have an impact on the economy. How so? Well, it had to do with this whole subject of idolatry. And you need to understand a couple of things about idolatry in the ancient world. The first of which is this. You need to understand that it was pervasive. It was everywhere. Now, we have a hard time understanding that today because we don't see this brand of idolatry today. That doesn't mean that idolatry has disappeared from the world. It is not. Idolatry is that worshiping of anything besides God. And I'm here to tell you today that idols are not necessarily things that in and of themselves are evil or wicked. An idol can be anything at all, even something that was intended for good, but we place it as a higher priority than God. If we do that, then it becomes an idol in our lives. So your job can be an idol. If it is the most important thing in your life, if it takes priority over everything else, let me tell you something, it has become an idol. 
remember the story of Mary and Martha? Remember that story where Mary and Martha had invited Jesus to their home and Jesus came and we're told that he was teaching and Lazarus was there and we're told that Martha was in the kitchen doing what? Making all the preparations for the meal. After all, she had guests in her house. When I think of Martha, I, I think of a, a southern lady. You know, she's in there and she's preparing the, the tomato aspic and she's getting the deviled eggs ready and she's doing all those things that are necessary in order to be a gracious hostess and her sister Mary is doing what? Sitting at the Lord's feet. Now, as far as we can tell, Martha wasn't too concerned about the fact that the men, Lazarus, her brother, was sitting there at the Lord's feet, but she was really irritated by the fact that Mary was sitting at the Lord's feet and she's in the kitchen doing all the hard work. And I don't know about you, but when I picture this scene, I sort of imagine, you know, one of those windows, one of those bars with a window there uh, from the kitchen leading into the dining room, and I see Jesus over there in the living room, and he's sitting there with all these people around them, and, and Mary's in there um, sitting with the men, and Martha's busy in the kitchen, and she can see her sister, and I always sort of imagine her sort of trying to get Mary's attention. Psst, Mary, Mary, get in here. And I sort of imagine Mary sort of looking over and, hi, Martha, and then going back and listening to the Lord. And, and this gets to the point where Martha's really quite frustrated about this to such a degree that eventually she interrupts Jesus and says, Lord, tell my sister to get in here and lend me a hand. And do you remember Jesus' response? Because it's very important the way Jesus put it to her. He says, and this is, I think, the NIV translation of it. He says, Martha, Martha, you are worried about many things, but Mary has chosen the better way and it will not be taken from her. Now what I like about that particular translation is Jesus doesn't say, you've chosen a bad way. He doesn't say that being hospitable, preparing a meal for guests is a bad thing. My goodness, the New Testament says, be careful to entertain strangers, for in so doing some have entertained angels unaware. It's not that she has chosen a bad way, it's that Mary has chosen what? The better way. And so what had happened? Well, her desire to be this gracious hostess had actually become an idol in her life. She had placed it as a higher priority than God's Word. And we find that, that anything in life, as I said, your career, your job, your, your money, your bank account, your finances, your children, when they become a higher priority to you than, than the Word of God, than God's kingdom and His glory, then it becomes an idol. Buildings, of course, any number of things can become idols to us. I'm reminded of something that the presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church, John Allen, who in my opinion, this is just my humble opinion, was the last believing presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church. But John Allen was once asked if he had any regrets about his time as presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church. And he said, looking back on it, and it was during his tenure as presiding bishop that a lot of the stuff that we're dealing with today really began to sort of bubble to the surface. And the presiding bishop thought for a moment, and then he turned and he said, yes, I have one great regret. He said, I loved the church more than I loved the Lord of the church. Now you think about that for a minute. I loved the church more than I loved the Lord of the church. 
The church is not a bad thing. It's the bride of Christ. It's a precious thing. But when it becomes a higher priority than the Lord of the church, then what? It becomes an idol. So I want you to understand, idolatry, unfortunately, is alive and well in the world today. But we still don't understand idolatry in the sense that you find it here in the first century, in places like Corinth or Athens or Ephesus. That, that kind of idolatry is very foreign to us. We may go to a museum and we may see the statues and the images and so forth, but we just can't imagine that kind of idolatry today. We are post-enlightenment people, and that kind of superstitious nonsense as we see it has passed away. Oh, it may be found in very primitive cultures and dark continents, but we don't find it in the Western world today. But you need to understand, if you're going to understand what happened here in Ephesus, that in the first century, this kind of idolatry was pervasive. It was everywhere. I mentioned when Paul went into Athens early in our study of the book of Acts, that he found that there was a temple practically on every street corner. They used to say that it was easier to find a god in Athens than it was to find a man. Paul even found an altar there to the unknown god. The fear was that perhaps he had missed one and he was going to offend it. And so the Athenians had erected this monument to an unknown god. Paul found that. If you've ever been to Athens, Greece, you still see vestiges of this today. They're, they're great tourist attractions today, but it gives you a little bit of a window into the type of world that Paul was ministering in. If you've ever gone to the top of the Acropolis, the whole thing is composed of temples. The great temple to Athena is, is the most impressive one up there, but there are temples up there to Nike, the goddess of victory, to Poseidon or Neptune, the, the god of the sea. If you go down to the bottom, the most well-preserved temple in all of antiquity is the, the temple to the god Hephaestus, who was the, the god of the iron workers and the metal workers. The largest temple in the world was located there in Athens. It was the temple to Zeus. And some of those are still there today, vestiges of this kind of idolatry. Almost every ancient city in the world at this time, within the Greco-Roman context, had a temple. Normally more than one, but there was normally one that sort of stood out as the patron goddess or god of the city. We said in Corinth it was what? It was Aphrodite, Venus, the goddess of love. In Athens, of course, as I said, it was Athena. Hence the name, Athens. But here, in Ephesus, it was the goddess Artemis, or Diana. So, you need to understand, idolatry was pervasive in the ancient world. And the second thing you need to understand, it was big, big business. Oftentimes, people came to visit these places, not only because they were commercial ports, but because of these temples. I said that when Paul went to Corinth and saw that temple dedicated to Aphrodite or to Venus, at one point, over 10,000 cultic prostitutes plied their trade in that one temple alone. 10,000! But we're talking about really big business in the ancient world. And it wasn't just what took place in the temple itself. 
There were all kinds of stalls and shops that would sell idols that you could use, that would take back as souvenirs. You know, sometimes when we go off to a place, I don't know that people do it so much anymore, but it used to be that when you went off to a place like Niagara Falls or someplace like that, you could buy those little silver spoons. How many remember those little, those little silver spoons? Perhaps your, your mothers or your you know, grandmothers may have collected those, and you brought them home as a memento of your visit. Well, that's exactly what people did, but you brought back little images, silver images of the god or the goddess. Those of you, how many of you went with me to the Holy Land uh, in the spring? One of the things that's so shocking to people, when they begin to walk through Jerusalem, on their way, now we're talking about holy sites here, on your way to the holiest site of all for Christians, Church of the Holy Sepulchre, where Jesus was crucified and raised from the dead, as you're walking along, what are people doing? Pajminas, pajminas, four for a dollar, one dollar, postcards, one for a dollar, one for a They're selling, they're buying and selling. It's big business. And it was big business in the ancient world. It was big business in the ancient world. So you need to understand that context. Jerusalem today is a pretty good picture of what it was like in those days. Well, here in Ephesus, as I said, there was this great temple to the goddess, goddess Artemis, as the Greeks called her, or Diana, as the Romans called her. Now, the Romans regarded her as the goddess of the hunt, Diana, and so you oftentimes see her pictured as hunting a stag. But the Greeks, at least here in Ephesus, regarded her as a goddess of fertility. And the images that we have, and we do have images, mostly terracotta images that have been dug up of her, depict a rather grotesque, multi-breasted figure. Symbolic, you see, of this fertility and these fertility rites. And just as with Aphrodite or Venus and Corinth, the way that you did homage to this goddess was that you went up to the temple and engaged with the priestesses who served the temple, who were cultic prostitutes. So we may not like it. It may seem absurd to us, but you need to understand it was big business in the ancient world, and it always involved sex. You know, come to think of it, it's really not all that different than today, is it? I, I mentioned on Sunday in the Rector's Forum that we're so upset about the actions of people like Harvey Weinstein and who else? Um, Matt Lauer, of course, is another example of this. And now Woody Allen, I guess, has come under some attack. And... Uh, and Bill Cosby and all of these people, we say, who've done these terrible things. And I do not want you to think for one minute that I am contoning what they are doing. They did terrible things, but we have a tendency to think that they're the problem. And I'm here to tell you, they're the product. They're the product of a culture that absolutely glorifies and worships sex. Now, there's no doubt about that, that that is a bodily desire and, and I'm going to tell you, there's nothing wrong with sex in its proper context. As a matter of fact, the very first command in the Bible, here's a little bit of trivia. The very first command in the Bible ever given to man is go and have sex. Now that's the Miller Amplified version of the text, I will tell you that much. But what, is the, what does the Lord say? Be fruitful and multiply. Well, what is it? How does that happen? 
We're adults. We know how that happened. It's not a case where the stork comes. We all understand that. So it's not that the bodily desire is necessarily evil or wicked. It's just that we have what? Made it an idol, haven't we? We have this disproportionate desire or emphasis on it. I'm going to take a little page from Brian McGreevy's book here and quote C.S. Lewis for a moment. Great quote by Lewis, but I think he nails it. And I want you to think about it because sex, as we said, is a bodily desire. But we have many bodily desires and needs. And this is how Lewis put it. He said, you can go and get a large audience together for a striptease act. That is, to watch a girl undress on the stage. Now, suppose you came to a country where you could fill a theater by simply bringing a covered plate onto the stage and then slowly lifting the cover so as to let everyone see just before the lights went out that it contained a mutton chop (laughs) or a bit of bacon. Would you not think that in that country something had gone wrong with the appetite for food? Well, do we not think that something has gone wrong with our appetite for sex? Listen, the world in which the Apostle Paul ministered is not all that different from the world in which you and I are called to minister. We still have idols. They may be different, but they are still here. They are still pervasive. And a lot of it has to do with sex. Now, here's what's interesting. Within 300 years, the type of idolatry that we encounter in the book of Acts, in places like Corinth and Athens and Rome, it was gone. It was non-existent in 300 years. Now that is not to say that the world suddenly became Christian, but it is to say that there is no other force that accounts for the obliteration and for the abandonment of this kind of idol worship except the advance of the Christian gospel. There were no significant advances in those days in terms of philosophy. There were no significant advances in those days in terms of science or medicine. All the things that you and I take for granted and we say that have driven out superstitious beliefs, there was none of that in the ancient world. There was only one force, and historians acknowledge this, one force that that accounts for the obliteration or the abandonment of idolatry of this kind, and that was the advance of the Christian gospel. 300 years, it was virtually, and it had been so pervasive, it was virtually non-existent in the ancient world. Now again, that doesn't mean that everybody became a Christian, that everybody embraced the message of Jesus Christ and his gospel, no. But it does mean that Christianity had a profound impact The light of the gospel came in, and as the light of the gospel came in, it began to drive out the darkness. And we see that happening here in Ephesus. Why were these people abandoning their idols? By the way, that's what got everybody so stirred up. This riot in Ephesus took place as a consequence of a silversmith by the name of Demetrius realizing that his prophets were down. We were doing pretty well until this fellow Paul showed up two years ago, and then all of a sudden I began to notice that my prophets began to slip. 
first year I was down by 12%. I'm down by 28% this year. Now what are we going to do about that? Let me tell you something. When the economy starts to slip, people take notice. And that's what Demetrius was concerned about. And so he began to put two and two together. What accounts for this slip in my profits? Well, I'll tell you, he said, what accounts for our slip in profits. And it wasn't just the silversmiths that were concerned. They were the ones that made the little idols that were sold as souvenirs and was big business. But everybody else that was associated with this whole business of idolatry, the, the priestesses and the priests up there at the temple, those who were the butchers, who had to take the meat and it would be offered up to the idols. All of these people were taking a hit. And Demetrius got together and he said, we've got to do something about this. What are we going to do? That's why this riot took place in Ephesus. Well, the fact that there was this gathering, the fact that there was this opposition, is evidence, if you think about it, of Paul's success. It's evidence of Paul's Success. I want to tell you something. If as Christians we are not making an impact on the economy, we don't have much Christianity. That's just a fact. If we are contributing to the very things that we complain about, we really don't have much Christianity, do we? See, there are many people out there in the world who are willing to acknowledge Jesus Christ as their Savior. I mean, everybody wants to go to heaven. Anybody out there rather go the opposite place? I've never met anybody who's ever wanted to go to hell, even out of a sense of curiosity. We all want to go to heaven. We all want to go when we die. And my goodness, if Jesus Christ is the only way to get there, then okay, be my Savior, Lord, save me. The problem that we struggle with is the Lordship of Jesus Christ. But you see, it's the other side of the coin. Jesus is not just the Savior, He is the Lord. Going into the ancient world and proclaiming that Jesus is Savior, that's not what got Paul martyred. That's not what got Peter executed upside down. That's not what got James beheaded or Stephen stoned. What got those men martyred was that they went in and they said, Jesus is Lord. That is to say there's another sheriff in town. There is another king. Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. And that gets people in trouble. And that's where we are today, my friends. We are living in an age in which people want to embrace Jesus as Savior, but they don't want Him to be the Lord to command their lives. But back there in Ephesus, they were embracing not a portion of the gospel, but the whole gospel. Jesus had become their Savior, and He was sitting on the throne of their lives to rule over them. He was their Lord to command them, and that was making a difference in the way they lived. And the way they lived was beginning to have an impact upon the culture and on the economy, and the world was sitting up and taking notice. Does the world sit up and take notice of us today? Or does it just regard Christians as sort of irrelevant? See, that's where we are. Keep your finger there in Acts, if you will, and turn for a moment to Mark. Mark chapter 8. And listen to what Jesus says here. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, 
If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will find it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his own soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. That's not Jesus meek and mild. That's not Casper Milk Toast Jesus. That's Jesus, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, demanding absolute fealty. You know, as Christians, there are going to come times when if we are going to be faithful to the Lord, we're going to have to make a choice. We're going to have to make tough decisions. And many of us don't want to make decisions. We don't want to make tough choices. We would just as soon pretend that we don't have to do that. But that's not the Christian way. The Christian life is all about a choice. It's the doctrine of two ways. A doctrine of two ways. Turn to Psalm 1 for just a second. Brian and I were talking about Psalm 1 just yesterday, I think it was. And Psalm 1's a, a great example of this. If you know anything about Hebrew literature, you know that it's very sophisticated literature, particularly Hebrew poetry. It's got a whole system of parallelism. We see a great example of this in Psalm 1. Psalm 1 begins, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of the sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. The author of this psalm is making it very clear there are two ways. And you're on one of two ways. We, we, we like to believe that there are many options, don't we? We, we like to go to restaurants where you've got lots of choices. What kind of salad dressing do you want? Blue cheese? Italian? Ranch? Vinaigrette? What kind of salad do you want? Garden salad? House salad? Caesar salad? What kind of tea do you want? Hot tea? Cold tea? Sweet tea? Unsweetened tea? We've got all of these options out there in the world, don't we? My goodness, go buy a new car. All the options that you can get on a new car. What color leather do you want? Do you want heated seats or not heated seats? Do you want power mirrors, power windows, crank mirrors? You name it. We live in a world of options. But the Bible is very clear. There are only two choices. One is to delight in the law of the Lord. The other is to walk in the counsel of the wicked. The wise man is like a tree planted by the stream of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. But, what? The wicked are not so. They are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. There are two ways. 
the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. And ladies and gentlemen, you're going to have to make a choice. And once you make the choice, there are going to be a whole series of other choices that you will have to make throughout the course of your life as a consequence. And Jesus makes it very clear, what will it profit if you gain the whole world, but you lose your own soul? Well, here in Ephesus, going back now to the book of Acts, one of the things that we see happening here in Ephesus is that these Ephesian Christians had taken the whole gospel. They had swallowed it whole, and it was making a huge impact. Such an impact, in fact, that they were not just toying with the idea of abandoning their idols, they were throwing them all away. Serious Christianity has serious implications for the culture. And I would go so far as to say it has serious impact upon the economy. And what's interesting is that we know from history that this didn't happen just here in Ephesus. Seventy years after Paul's ministry in Ephesus, we have secular records, correspondence that took place between the governor of the region of Bithynia, which Paul had passed through, and the Roman emperor, Trajan. Uh, the uh, governor's name was Pliny. He was the governor of Bithynia. He was writing to Trajan, and he writes to Trajan asking for advice on any number of matters. But one of the things that concerned him the most was the impact of these Christians upon the economy. He said that within his region, these Christians had gotten to a point that they were so numerous and were beginning to abandon the whole business of idol worship to such a degree that it was impacting the economy. And he writes to the emperor and he says, I don't know what to do about this. They don't seem to be immoral people. He said, they don't seem to be undermining or working against the goals of the empire. He said, they are not in any way running down your majesty. He said, but they are abandoning the practices of our world to such a degree and they're having such an impact on others that they're impacting the economy and I don't know what to do about it. And after all, when you're a governor, that's part of your job, isn't it? Keep the economy up. And he says, I don't know what to do about it. I think that's really fascinating. Does the Christian church have an impact upon the economy in America today? How many of you think we have a significant impact upon the culture today in terms of the economy? I would say probably very little, actually, in terms of the impact that we have on the economy in America today. Look at what we spend our money on. Very little of that has to do with the Christian gospel. So I think that one of the things that we have to watch out for, living as we do in an affluent culture, is to become lukewarm. <laughs> we need to be hot or we need to be cold, but we cannot be lukewarm. Well, they were not lukewarm, and they had a profound impact upon their culture. But that didn't mean that those who opposed Paul and the gospel were about to go away quietly. They were going to fight for their livelihood, and they did. And uh, that's exactly what happened. We're told that Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis and brought no little business to the craftsmen, these he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said to them, Men, you know 
that from this business we have our what? Wealth. This is our livelihood. It's how we make our money. This is how we pay the bills. This is how we go on vacation. We can't let this happen to us. And so he tries to gather all these people together, all of these guildsmen, and make a defense for their livelihood. And what I want you to notice is the way that he makes his defense, because people still make the same defense today against the gospel. The first defense is an appeal to civic pride. Look at verse 27. Demetrius says, This Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is a danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. We can't let this happen. What is Ephesus known for, folks? Ephesus is known for the temple. If these Christians continue to have their way, my goodness, nobody's going to want to come to Ephesus anymore because that's what we're known for. This is an appeal to patriotism, civic pride. We can't let that happen. People will do that today. They'll appeal to civic pride, the American way of life. That's one defense that they give. What's the other defense? Well, the other defense has to do with an appeal to numbers. Verse 27. And we know that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence. She whom all what? Asia and the world worship. She whom all Asia and the world worship. You ever heard those expressions? Everybody's doing it. Now, was it necessarily true that all Asia and the world worshipped Artemis? Of course not. But that's what they said. Oh, all Asia and the world. An appeal to numbers. And finally, it was an appeal to emotion. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. And he gathered these together. And before long, what was happening? They became so enraged, they were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So that the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together. And some cried one thing, and some another, and the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not even know why they'd come together. It was all what? Emotion. We live in an emotive age don't we? It's all a matter of how it feels. It's not a matter of whether it's right or wrong, true or false, it's a matter of how it feels. That's how we determine whether something is legitimate or not. We have the same problem today as Paul had in the first century. We are still battling idols. The idols may be different, but we're still dealing with them. Oftentimes they're associated with sex, but not necessarily. And the same defense that were made against these, for these idols is the same defense that are made for the idols today. First of all, it's an appeal to numbers. Let me show you how this works. A young person goes off to college or university. They've been raised in a Christian church, raised in a Christian home. What they want to do when they go off to college is live as a believer. 
and they quickly discover, particularly if they are on a secular camp campus, that many people do not think the same way they think. And what's the first thing they hear? An appeal to numbers. Oh, you don't believe that, do you? Nobody believes that anymore. Have you ever heard that expression? Nobody believes that anymore. Which, if you think about it, makes no sense whatsoever. Because if you believe it, somebody believes it. You're not a nobody. So what do they say? Well, okay, maybe you believe it. But the vast majority of people no longer think that way. Isn't that what they say? In fact, the only people who believe that way are conservative, narrow-minded, bigoted, fundamentalist Christians. Now, have you ever heard that sort of language today? We've all heard that language today. And of course, you don't want to be in what? In that kind of a small, narrow group. You don't want to be bigoted. You don't want to be narrow-minded. You don't want to be in the minority. The vast majority of people believe this way. Now, that can be a very powerful argument. My response is, who cares? You know, I'm so tired of public opinion polls. 80% of the American public believes that the president lied about Russia. Who cares? The question is not, does 80% of the public believe that he lied? The question is, did he lie? Somehow, we seem to think if you've got numbers on your side, that makes it legitimate. Well, let me tell you, the vast majority of the people at one time believed that the Earth and not the Sun was the center of the solar system. I mentioned this in the sermon on Sunday. Poor Copernicus. When he appeared on the scene and he said, I, I, I don't think so. You could just imagine what people Oh, Copernicus, certainly you, you don't believe that. Nobody believes that the sun is the center of the universe. Everybody, or at least the vast majority of people, believe that the earth is the center of the solar system. Only narrow-minded, backwards, bigoted, ignorant people believe that the sun is the center of the universe. Now, if Copernicus had been willing to accept this whole argument from numbers, where would we be? But you see, that's how the world operates, isn't it? Nobody believes that way anymore. Or they will say this, everybody is doing it. Oh my goodness, when you deal with teenagers, that's exactly what you get. But Dad, can I go to prom house? That was a big argument in my house when we lived in Beaufort. Dad, there's a prom house. Uh-huh. There is, is there? Yeah, Dad, everybody's going. I said, well, I can tell you, everybody's not going. Dad, they are. I said, no, they're not, because you're not going. <laughs> so everybody is not going. But you see, that's the argument, isn't it? Everybody is doing it. Nobody believes that anymore. And that's the way we operate in our culture. And it can be very, very powerful. And if it's not an appeal to numbers, it's an appeal to emotion, isn't it? 
How does this work? I just, I just can't believe it's wrong when it feels so right. <laughs> if loving you is wrong, I don't want to be right. <laughs> You've all heard that language. What is this? It's an appeal to emotion. That's all this is. But when you are living in a culture where people refuse to think through the issues and they simply want to feel through the emotion, this is a very powerful argument. Doesn't make much sense. It's sort of like all the advertisements that you see on television today. They don't make sense. There's not necessarily a connection between the product and the reality, but that doesn't matter. It sells. Sort of like this advertisement. <laughs> now, now, what's the implication of that? This is what you look like. Gladys Kravitz over here on the left-hand side. But you put on this lipstick and all of a sudden, you look like her. Now, is there a connection? I is that a picture of reality? Absolutely not. But let me tell you something, it sells the lipstick. That, that, that's what happens in an emotive culture. And I know I've been sort of beating up on this person lately, but I'm just going to go ahead and do it again. It, it reminds me of Oprah Winfrey <laughs> at the Golden Globe Awards, where she gave this speech. What I know for sure is that you feel joy in direct proportion to how connected you are to living your truth. Whatever your secret, live your own truth. Life is too short. And she's not just the only person saying this. She's just a major spokesman. And whenever I hear those words, it reminds me of that line from Macbeth. A tale told by an idiot, filled with sound and fury, and representing nothing. And that's the world in which you and I are living. Now, what was the outcome? Well, the outcome, ironically, was that the Christians, at least on this occasion, were vindicated when they were dragged there into the Colosseum, and by the way, I've been to that Colosseum, actually preached in that Colosseum, great privilege of mine. But when they were dragged into this Colosseum in Ephesus, it became very clear. Representative of the town council said, look men, we can't afford to meet like this. We're going to be accused of rioting. We may not like what Paul and these fellow Christians are doing to our economy, but the reality is they haven't broken the law. If anybody's in danger of breaking the law, they said, we're in danger of breaking the law. We're going to be in danger of unlawful assembly. We're going to be accused of rioting. So my advice to you is go home. And eventually, after two hours of yelling, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, some not even knowing why they were there, all this pandemonium, eventually that energy sort of drained away and people began to go home. And as far as we can tell, the church continued there in Ephesus. On this occasion, at least, Christians were vindicated. Now that doesn't mean that Paul was not willing to suffer. He was perfectly willing to suffer if necessary. It just means that on this occasion they didn't have to. 
And there will be times when we will stand for our faith and we won't suffer for it. But we know that in most places, Paul did. And yet I want to ask you a question. Where is Artemis today? <laughs> Great is Artemis of the Ephesians for two hours. Artemis, whose stone fell from heaven, whom all Asia and the world worship. Where is Artemis today? I'd be willing to wager that a great many of you, before I taught this Bible study today, had never heard of Artemis of the Ephesians, whom all Asia and the world worship. We'd never even heard of her. And that's because she really wasn't all that great, was she? If you go to Rome, one of the buildings that you'll see, one of the most famous buildings in Rome, is what? The Colosseum. Now, you'll notice in the Colosseum there are all those sort of niches going around. At the time of the first century, when Rome was at the height of its power, every single one of those niches was filled with a, an image of the gods. As I pointed out to you, the Greeks and the Romans had uh, an image for a whole host of gods. They had a pantheon of deities. They had a, a god of the door hinges. That's no exaggeration. They even had a god of the compost pile. So there were gods for everything, hundreds and hundreds of gods. And the reason there are all those niches there is that they were all filled with images of the gods. But if you go to Rome today, you'll notice that all the niches are empty, except for one. There is one niche still that has an image of a god in it. that God. What happened to all of these other deities? Well, what happened was that Christians took their faith seriously. They embraced Jesus Christ as their Savior. They embraced Jesus Christ as their Lord. And they began to follow hard after Him. They began to leave behind the things of this world and follow hard after Jesus. And even though the world tried to appeal to numbers, everybody's doing this. Nobody believes that anymore. Even though they tried to appeal to emotion, the Christians were true to their calling. And they brought the temples and the empire to its knees. Are we doing that today? Because let me tell you, if we are not impacting our culture, if we're not impacting our city, you don't even have to go and talk about the impact your city. How did it start? It started here in the city of Ephesus. If we're not impacting our city with the gospel of Jesus Christ, then we don't have much Christianity, really. But they did. And it made all the difference. Now, I saw somebody's hand go up in the back. Mara, 